All right. So we are in John chapter 8, like I said just earlier. And in John chapter 8, what you're going to find is we're at the end of an intense conversation that Jesus has been having with some new believers, right? What we saw was there was a whole group of people that believed that Jesus was the light of the world, and it said that they began to believe in him and follow him. And what we know is that that word belief is more robust in the Greek. It, there's this entrusting. There is, it's more than just simply like cognitively believe. And what we've seen is through Jesus' discipleship methods of going straight at what's in the depths of their hearts, he roots out those that only partially trusted him. And he roots it out for their good. He wants them to see what it means to really trust and follow and believe in him. And so we've been in this conversation for three weeks now where Jesus is just coming at this group really hard. Like he is just, he's not holding back and they are having a hard time with it and they're responding to him and they don't like anything really that he's saying. I loved what John Crawford, Pastor John Crawford said last week when he was talking. He's, he, he noticed how last week's passage was the passage that a lot of the Nazis used to demean and oppress Jewish people, to perpetuate anti-Semitic ideas. And he said, what the problem is that sometimes we'll read passages like last week and we will go, man, we'll just judge those people, that crowd that was with Jesus. But what he pointed out to this is, if this is God's word for all people in all times and all places, then as we come to difficult conversations like this, as we look at these passages, we don't just judge from afar. We take these conversations that Jesus has with others, and we take what he says, and we take it towards our heart, and we examine our hearts with these difficult truths. We don't just judge from afar. We take God's word, and we examine our hearts with this. And so this is what I want to do today, is this is the last part of this difficult conversation that Jesus is having with these people that only partially trust Jesus. And what I want us to do is we're going to break it up into three parts, and each part I'm going to have a, a question for us. A question looking at how the crowd is reacting to Jesus, and questions looking at how Jesus is talking to the crowd, and each one these questions that I ask will be a question that we can take and examine our hearts, that we might be convicted by how we relate to God, how we relate to Jesus, how we even relate to others. Now, it could sound like I'm setting up a sermon that's kind of like, here, here's a moralistic sermon, I just want you guys to be good and not bad. But what I want us to see is these questions are good for us because when we see the ways in which we are uh, trusting in ourselves or trusting in others or sinning, because I think sinning is almost always trusting in something other than God. When we can see that, then it is far easier to turn to Jesus and trust him and follow him and know him and believe in him. Okay? And so we're going to break up this last passage into three parts. Each part will have a question for us that we can examine our hearts with and I think hopefully be convicted by where we need to be convicted. So turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to be in verse 48 today. That's where we'll start. And we're just going to start right. Uh, we're just going to read the first three verses. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Let's stop there. So, so far in this conversation, Jesus has said a lot of things to them that they haven't liked. He started off by saying, hey, you guys are enslaved to sin. And they didn't like that because they felt that their identity was a free people and they didn't want to hear that there was a greater enslaver than what they could imagine. So they didn't like that. Jesus also said, hey, your, your father, your real father is the devil. That's pretty messed up. <laughs> like, it's pretty mean. Like, it sounds intense. But what Jesus was pointing out was the truth, was that their way of life was what the devil's way of life for them would be. And even, Jesus even flat out says, you guys, you're not even of God. You're not even of God. And so their response in the verses that we just saw was, well, this guy's crazy, <laughs> right? This guy, so they, they immediately say, hey, you must have a demon. You must be a Samaritan. Because their thought process was, well, we demean the Samaritans, and only the Samaritans would ever say something like that to us. But they knew that Jesus was Jewish. They weren't confused. They were just flat out trying to insult him by demeaning another ethnicity. And then they go, well, you have a demon. You, you have something in you. Like, there is an evil spiritual being inside of you causing you to say these things. And Jesus' response is, listen, I don't have a demon, yet you guys are dishonoring me right now by saying that. And there seems to be this, this, this group seems to be saying to Jesus, it seems like you're trying to build up a name for yourself. And Jesus' response is, I'm not building up a name for myself. Yet, God is building up a name for me. God is giving me glory. Jesus is almost saying, it is what it is. I'm not building up my own platform, but a platform for me is being built. Because that's what God's doing. And so, I, I want to stop here before we continue in this conversation. I want to stop with this first question that I have for us today. The question that I want us to take and examine our hearts with. I'm afraid about this question that only half the room will rejoice in hopes that the other half of the room examines their hearts with it. It might make sense when I talk about it. But here's the question. And this is something I see this crowd doing. When someone challenges your viewpoints, do you demonize them? Okay, that's the question. When someone challenges your viewpoints or your opinions or thoughts or ideas, do you demonize them? I, I actually wonder if this word demonize in English has its origins in, in these stories where, where Jesus is, is told that he has a demon or he's accused of having a demon. It happens two or three times in the Gospels where whatever Jesus is saying bothers them so much that they say, you must have a demon. Uh, to be clear, our demonizing, when we demonize others, we're not saying anybody has a demon. But what we are saying when we demonize others is we want to portray them as evil. We want to vilify them. We want to say that they are worthy of contempt. And so the question for us is, when someone pushes against your worldviews, when someone pushes against your opinions, do you demonize them? Do you vilify them? Do you think that they now are worthy of contempt? Why do I want to talk about this? You know why. Y'all are doing this. And I should say, we all are doing this. 
I could easily go, hey, out there and the crazy, you know, in the media, all this, like all this, it's everybody's deep. No, we are doing this. Let's examine our own hearts. I don't know if there's any other year in my life that I've been more sure that people in this room love to demonize others. I'm speaking for myself. I'm speaking for my own heart's draw that when someone disagrees with me or challenges my worldview or corrects me, there is something in me that wants to say, you've got to be evil so I can still be good. You've got to be worthy of contempt so I can still be good, so I can still be fine. Church, this is something we're struggling with. As a society, as a culture, however you want to say it. But I know for myself, this is something I'm struggling with. My heart has a propensity to demonize. And I think we probably go, well, what's the, is that so bad? I began to list out the different things that demonizing does. Demonization tends to destroy unity in the church. We've got Gen Z people in here, and we've got baby boomers in here. And because of that wide disparity and everything in between, as a pastor, I think a lot of times what I feel like is I have somebody going, why is that person so bad? Somebody coming up to me because of generational differences and going, why is that person so bad? And begin to demonize them. And it destroys the unity that we have in this church. I'm not talking about a different church. I'm talking about this church. Demonization destroys unity. Demonization lacks love. When we demonize others, when we say others are worthy of contempt, when we vilify others, we are not seeing them with the image of God on them. There is a duality in Scripture of saying, we have the image of God on us, and yet we're sinful and broken. And I, I'm, I fear that some of us forget the whole image of God thing. We forget places where Jesus says, like in Matthew 25, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. So how we treat others is how we treat God, is what Jesus says. It lacks love when we demonize others. We don't see them as an image bearer with God's image on them. Demonization, it tends to puff yourself up. It tends to puff yourself up. You could say, no, I'm calling it as it is. No, I think almost every time you're demonizing someone, you are pushing them down while lifting yourself up. Maybe you're doing it in a group and you're talking about somebody outside of the group. You are pushing that person outside of the group down while lifting yourself up so that those in the group can see you as awesome, as good, as righteous, as a truth teller. Demonization tends to puff ourselves up. It also stops us from changing when we need to change. I mean this on a real practical level. Some of us, the way we relate to one another is someone calls us out, and they're calling us out in a way that's good for us. But in our hearts, in our minds, even with our words, we demonize them so we don't have to change. So nothing in our life has to change. So we don't have to walk in the way of Christ. Demonizing others is sin. 
Demonizing others is sin. It's lying about somebody. It's hatred. It's arrogance. It's condemnation. And it's divisive. And yet, we all allow ourselves to get sucked into it. And usually when someone is, finds themselves demonizing others, usually their response is something like, I'm just calling it as it is. Listen, I am all for calling out sin. Ask any of my friends. I'm like, dang, could you give me a break here? I'm all for speaking the truth in love. But a lot of what we're doing is not that. It is a demonization. It is a vilification. It is more similar to what the crowd is doing to Jesus. There's a verse that's been haunting me the last few months. And this is a verse in Matthew where Jesus is saying all these woes and judgments to the Pharisees, to the religious teachers. It haunts me because I'm, I'm a religious teacher, right? Like it haunts me for good reason. And what he says to them is this. He goes, you are laying heavy burdens on people's shoulders. And he meant religious burdens, moral burdens on people's shoulders, without doing a thing yourself to lift a finger to help them with those burdens. Jesus does not simply want us just to be truth moralistic tellers. If we're going to call out sin, we have to be part of bearing that burden with someone. Bringing them to Jesus. Showing them what repentance and forgiveness in God looks like. But because our society as a whole loves to demonize, we get sucked into demonizing. We are all constantly kind of going, that person's really bad. Without having any sort of real relationship with that person. It's not the way of Christ. Okay, it sounds like, Anthony, okay, you're just saying, stop, stop doing this. Stop. Why? 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 Why does this matter? One, it matters because it's a horrible witness to the world. When we do that, they don't see Jesus. They see a human. They don't see a confidence in Christ. They don't see an identity in Christ. It's a horrible witness. But also, I think when we demonize, it's a symptom that we're living into a religion of self. A religion of self says, I matter, I need to prove my righteousness, I need to work to prove that I'm good, and demonization, I think, nine times out of ten is doing that in some way. Demonization often is us just trying to convince ourselves that we're good enough, that we're righteous, that we've got a hold on our morality. And a whole bunch of other people don't, and they're bad. And you're going, I, think, I, don't, I don't think that's going on in my head. Look at your heart. Examine your heart. It's very easy to tell if this is part of what you're doing. If you examine your heart truly and honestly, are you operating in a religion of self? Or are you following the way of Christ? Right? The arrogance is an, an effort to convince ourselves we're good and we don't need Jesus. 
Like, I would never say that, Anthony. I know, that's the part of the problem, probably. That's probably why we continue to demonize. The disunity that demonizing others causes and contends for is an effort to say that you, when you demonize, you have a hold on Christianity. Not Jesus. Not the Holy Spirit. Not the Father. That you have more of a hold on Christianity. Isn't that absurd? I've just watched over the last few months as different little issues have come up in the American evangelical church. And everybody's going, that church ain't it, that church ain't it, that church ain't it, that church is going to be evil, that church is going to be that. And now maybe there's some truth in there, I don't know. But I'm beginning to think we're just demonizing to make ourselves feel better. It is a religion of self. The way of Jesus is centered on him saving us, on him restoring us, on him bringing about justice, on him being grace and truth. Examine your hearts, church. Do you demonize others? Ask yourself why. Why are you demonizing others? What is going on in your heart? It's not the way of Christ. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I cut Jesus off. This is him talking again. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. As did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that... If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They're going back and forth. And I love Jesus. Jesus is constantly throughout the book of John inviting people into life. Even in the midst of an intense conversation, he goes, if you, just, if you abide in my teaching, if you follow my teaching, if you abide in me, you will find life. You won't die. Now, Jesus was speaking towards the resurrection and the foretaste of the re- resurrection that all his people get. But they took it really literally and said, listen, Abraham died. The prophets died. Are you saying you're better than those guys? And Jesus says, I'm, again, he's going, I'm not trying to make a name for myself, but my father, who you call God, is making a name for me. It is what it is. Glory is being given to Jesus because he's God's son. And he's going, it is what it is. And, he, he, and then he even goes, listen, if Abraham could see, this Abraham you guys keep mentioning throughout this conversation, if Abraham looked forward to this day, If he could see what God was doing through me, if he could see me, if he could see it, he would rejoice. 
he would be glad. And I think that Jesus, even speaking to Abraham, in one sense did see it and was glad to see this day. And so he's challenging to saying, you don't really get Abraham. You don't really understand the promise that he was living toward. The promise that he knew that God would restore all things one day. You don't get it. So, there's a lot there. We could do five different sermons probably just from the words there. But here's the question I want us to examine our hearts with. I've asked it recently. I'm going to ask it again. It's this. Do you know God? Do you know God? This is not the first time that Jesus has voiced this concern. A few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was troubled and concerned that they didn't actually know God. He voices it again here. He goes, you don't really know God. And Jesus almost goes, I know him, but you don't know him. Anthony, why, why? If you talked about it a few weeks ago, why are you talking about it again? I think if Jesus says something twice, I should probably say it twice. And I think it must be something in this room, even if it's just one person is struggling with. Because there, is, there are probably more than one person in here who feels because of their religion, who feels because of how they go to church every Sunday, who feels because of they do whatever, that they know God. And I think that Jesus would challenge that religiosity and say, do you know him though, really? If he was here, would you know him? We need to be challenged by that. And why I want to talk about it again is I think that in this passage, Jesus gives us the key to knowing God. And it's him. Right? He goes, you guys don't know God? Jesus says, I know God. I know him. So the, the key to knowing God is to know Jesus. So last time when we talked about this idea, I just left you with that question. And I just wanted you to sit with that and go, do I really know God? Do I have a genuine relationship with God? I wanted you to sit with that. But this time we see Jesus say, hey, I know him. I really think Jesus is saying, I can introduce you to him. I can tell you his ways. I can tell you what he's doing. In fact, I think Jesus, I have been telling you what he's doing. The key to knowing God is to know Jesus. If you think the key to knowing God is doing religious things, you might not know God. The key to knowing God is to know Jesus. And so I want to give us some feet to that. If a few weeks ago you're like, I'm not sure if I know God, I, just, I want to just talk about how we can know God. I mean, an easy way is, is through his word. We have an extreme blessing that God guided his disciples and followers to write the things he said and the things he de- did. And so we can go and we can honestly get to know Jesus through this. I think sometimes we over-emotionalize it or over-spiritualize it or whatever you want to call it where we think you can't get to know God by reading this. I think you can. Sure, I think we need the Spirit to help with that. But I think sometimes it looks a lot more normal than we think. One way to get to know God is to get to know Jesus. And one way to get to know Jesus is through this. 
through his word, through the gospels, through the Bible. If you want to get to know Jesus, read this. You will be, even if you think Jesus isn't God, I will contend that you are getting to know God by getting to know Jesus. This is who God is. That's one way. Another way is this, is, is prayer. It's talking to God. I believe that Jesus sent his spirit into the world and his spirit is at work doing all sorts of things. And so I think in some crazy way that you can pray and actually get to know Jesus. I don't think it will ever contradict the word. Like, if you like, well, I've, I was praying the other day and I found out Jesus has a tentacle. Like, I, I would be like, that's, no. That's not, that's not that. And that's not it. But I still think that you can get to know God, Jesus through prayer. Because of the Holy Spirit. Acts calls the Holy Spirit at one point the Spirit of Jesus. You can get to know God also through his people. The, what Jesus says is that his spirit is in his people. And so if you want to get to know Jesus, which is getting to know God, be with his people. Be around his people. Not the nominal ones, not like the people that really know Jesus. And you can get to know God. By being around his people. It's mysterious. The spirit works in different ways. But these very simple things, and there's all kinds of other ways to get to know Jesus. But these very simple things are how we get to know Jesus. How we get to know God. I think sometimes we make it too complicated. Because we hear somebody with a really cool story where they prayed and a light turned on. And like all this stuff happened. And we think, that has to happen to me. I don't think it has to happen that way. It can happen that way. And I thank God when it does. But I think getting to know Jesus is a lot more simple than we think it is. I know sometimes it feels like screaming out into the void when we pray. Or like we're, or like we're reading the same sentence over and over again. Or God's people disappoint us time and time again. But I truly think that we can get to know God through those ways, through those means. Do you know God? If you don't, encounter his word, encounter prayer, encounter his people. And I think you could get to know God. And this is what matters to Jesus. Church, we should fight for knowing Jesus. Not working for Jesus. I think a lot of us are convinced, I just got to work for Jesus. I just got to live for Jesus. And I, I, I agree, we need to live for Jesus. But Jesus actually wants to know us like a friend, like a father, like a shepherd. Jesus wants us to know him. That seems to be a big concern of his I'm trying my best to not just preach the Ten Commandments to you guys and say, that's the key. Because we have a God who, although we obey his commandments, it's, we obey them out of relationship with him. He wants us to know him. Examine your hearts. Do you know him? Why or why not? 
Only through Jesus' relationship with God possible. Let's keep going. We're going to read the, the last part of this passage where it gets the most intense. Verse 57. So, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So at this point, this new group of believers, believing that he's the light of the world, have fully turned on him. They're insulting him. They go, man, you're not even 50. Almost kind of say, you're not old enough to know Abraham. And I love that Jesus just ignores their insult and goes, you know what? Before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, I am. And then they pick up stones. Then they pick up stones to try and kill Jesus. And then one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture happens, Jesus ninja turtles out of that situation, okay? If you don't know what this is, you might not have been born in the 80s. <laughs> but the ninja turtles would often find themselves surrounded by ninjas and then kind of like covered by ninjas. And then the ninja turtle would just pop out behind them and get out of there, right? So I'm working on a paper called Maybe Jesus Was a Ninja Turtle. Um, I'm just kidding. That's blasphemous. God, forgive me. Um, But why do they pick up stones? What's going on there? And why did Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I was? Why does he say, I am? And a lot of you know the answer already. But Jesus is making a huge claim about his identity right here. A huge claim about his identity. To understand the claim, we have to go back to Exodus 3. Exodus 3 is one of the most pivotal chapters for the Jewish people. And so Jesus is talking to people that know about a chapter that they know very well. And we as Christians know this chapter very well. It is the burning bush moment where God appears to Moses as a burning bush. And he begins to talk to Moses. And he says, I am the God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I've heard my people's cry in Egypt. I've seen their affliction, and I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to save them through you, Moses. And Moses hears all that, and then Moses has a question for God. And we, it will be on the screen. Verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 3 says this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In one of the most pivotal moments, I would argue, in the history of the world, when God is asked, hey, what's your name? God says, I am. Many years later, when a crowd is challenging Jesus and who he is and how long he's existed, instead of saying he existed before Abraham, he says, I am. Jesus is absolutely 
claiming to be God here. This is why they picked up the stones. They thought it was blasphemy. Jesus was absolutely claiming, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is absolutely claiming to be that by saying this. You could read commentators. You can see it all. Jesus is trying to say that his name is I am as well. And they can't handle it. They want to kill him for it. Side thought, if you ever have a teacher, you have a friend who says Jesus never really claimed to be God, show them these two passages. And just say, what do you think is happening there? It is hard to take in and understand that Jesus, a man, is saying he's also God. Which leads me to my last question to examine our hearts with. And it's this. Does Jesus occupy every part of your life except for the pinnacle? I'm going to say it again. Does Jesus occupy every part of your life except for the pinnacle? Remember, this crowd was totally willing to say, okay, you can be the light of the world. We're good with you saying that you're the light of the world. We believe that you're the light of the world, which is also a really big, audacious claim. But the second that Jesus said, I am, they, had, they picked up stones to kill him. And I wonder if we... Like that crowd, let Jesus into a lot of parts of our life. But he's never the pinnacle. I think one of the most controversial statements we have at this church is this. It's the banners you see as you come in. All of life is all for Jesus. That is one of the mo- I think that is maybe the most controversial thing that we, ha- that we say at this church. You're going, no, Anthony, I love it. I love those. I want one of the shirts. Order more. Like, and, and I'm on hikes, and people are going, I love your shirt, son. It's always an older gentleman. And uh, like, I love it. It's a great, awesome saying. No, it is the most controversial saying. Because what we mean by that statement is that we think all of creation is under Jesus' lordship. That Jesus is the master over everything. That Jesus is the master totally and completely of your life. Not just parts of it, but every part of your life. Every part of this world. And the reason that it's controversial is because there are parts of our life and parts of our world that we don't want Jesus to be Lord and master over. We might, not, we might say, Anthony, that's not what I'm thinking. And I, I would just say, you probably need to do some more introspection. That is the most controversial thing we say at this church. Because we are claiming that Jesus is Lord over all. I want us to be honest with ourselves. 
I want us to be honest with ourselves about if we, like the crowd, let Jesus into a lot of parts of our life, but not to be the pinnacle over our life. I'm going to bring up some things that I commonly see us struggling to allow Jesus to be Lord over. Sexuality. More and more, more of us are saying, I can't let Jesus be Lord over my sexuality. I can't let him. We convince ourselves, well, it's just been the church trying to control all these people and do all these things. But when you look at, 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 at Jesus' words, which are tough and difficult in what he says about sexuality, it looks like Jesus is to be Lord over our sexuality. Is it politics? Oh, great. Anthony's bringing up politics again. Stop making it an idol and I'll stop bringing it up. (laughs) Nervous laughter. Um, Five more people leave the church. Listen, I'm speaking to both sides of the aisle. The second I say something that sounds like one side of the aisle, I, oh, oh man, I'm, I'm like fasting and praying to figure out how to like make amends with this person. And it's, I think sometimes that happens because one, I'm a doofus. Sometimes I say things not the best. But I think a lot of times it happens because we don't want Jesus to be Lord over our politics. We won't take Jesus and his words and his teachings and apply them to our politics and go, okay, Jesus, how do you change my politics? How do you be master over my politics? A whole bunch of people, half the room's going, well, actually, the whole room's probably going, no, I do, I do. I don't know. I don't know if we do that. I don't know if we allow Jesus to be Lord over that. My proof is the last year. I don't even know if we allow Jesus to be Lord over our temperaments. This is what I mean. A lot of times in Christian community, I'm not even speaking as a pastor, I'll be calling my brothers and sisters in Christ to gentleness and kindness. And they'll go, no, 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 no. I'm telling the truth as it is. It doesn't matter. Jesus flipped tables. I was like, oh, Jesus died on the cross too. Like there's a lot of things Jesus did. Let's not pick and choose to, to make our temperament seem like it's okay when every other place where the Bible talks about correcting one another and speaking the truth, it says do it in love, do it with mercy, do it with grace, do it with gentleness. Some of us are convinced in some of our relationships with others, we do not have to let Jesus be Lord and master over our temperament because we feel justified in how we're acting or we were raised a certain way. That's simply not true, church. You're letting Jesus into a lot of parts of your life, but not that one. Another one, money. That is such a, uh, Jesus talks about money a lot. And he used it as an illustration, as an idol. And as a pastor, I'm like scared to do that. Because I know the ramifications of trying to root up idols inside of us. Is, Is money where you can't 
let Jesus be master over your life? Is it romance? Is it your love life? Is it your marriage? Is it how you parent? Like, the list could go on. I could give example after example of where we allow Jesus into so many parts of our life. We allow him to be the light of the world in so many parts of our life. But the second it starts to get uncomfortable, the second it means I have to change, the second it means I have to repent and turn to him, the second it means I have to trust in his grace to save me and not my good works, that's the second we pick up stones to throw at Jesus too. Where our belief is revealed to be what it is. Partial belief. A belief that says, I'll let you be the light of my world, but I won't let you be the great I am. I won't let you be Lord. I won't let you be master. Church, are we allowing Jesus in all sorts of parts of our life, but not the pinnacle? If so, here's the solution. Repent. Repent simply means see your mess, see your sins, see your shortcomings, and turn to Jesus and say, hey, I, I have all these shortcomings. I need you. That's all it is. It's probably more and more robust than that, but it, it's simple levels. That's all. It's just turning away from your way of life and turning to Jesus and finding life in him instead of in your way of life. When we begin to allow Jesus to be the pinnacle, when we choose not to stone him, but to hear what he's saying, that he's the great I am, it's going, there's going to be a lot of reshuffling in our lives. There is. You're going to go some decades, you're going to hear something, and you're like, I've been doing this for decades. I've been doing this thing wrong for decades. I've been thinking this way wrongly for decades. I've been treating someone poorly for decades. And that is extremely painful to admit. And it's extremely difficult to see your, see your actions for what they are. But thank God for his grace. Thank God for the life that he wants to give us. We can reshuffle our lives to Jesus' lordship because what he has for us is far better than any of the pain of reshuffling. That's the beauty of the resurrection. We have a great hope that despite all of us messing things up all the time, that Jesus will still resurrect us. He will still restore us. He will still make us whole. It will feel like a death at times to make Jesus master and Lord. But you will actually be gaining life in Jesus. Okay, I, I hope that we've been convicted where we need to be convicted today by some of these questions. I don't want us to feel condemned but where we fall short, the good news is we can just turn to Jesus. And so perhaps you go, man, I, I, I do demonize others. It's good for you to realize that you are working for your own good. 
you're working for your own righteousness. It's good for you to realize that because the only one with righteousness is Jesus. Perhaps you do a lot of religion without actually knowing God. It's good for you to realize that because Jesus came and lived, died, and raised from the dead so you could know God. And perhaps Jesus, you're realizing, man, I let Jesus occupy a lot of parts of my life, not the pinnacle, though. Jesus is inviting you to trust him as king, to trust him as master, to trust him as Lord over your whole life. I want to leave us asking a question and just sitting in that. Will we be a people that recognize the ways that we operate in the religion of self and turn from it? Or will we be a people that picks up the proverbial stones to knock Jesus out of our life? Which people will we be? Let's pray. God, we need you. Jesus, thank you for how real you are. I can't imagine that the holy God of all would come to earth and never have conversations with people like this. It makes sense. But God, for some of us in the room, it's hard to hear these things from you. It's hard to be corrected by these things. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just be gracious to us. Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you'd fill in the gaps where I didn't. That you would help us to understand what it means to find life in you. That we would understand that it's not our works, it's not us being good, it's not our righteousness, but that it's your righteousness. It's your work. It's what you did. Be kind to us. Be gracious to us. We want to be a people that don't just see you as light of the world, but a people that sees you as light of the world and the great I am. And God, I ask if there's anybody in here struggling with that, I ask that you just give them faith. Do a work in their heart where they believe in you. And God, for all of us in the room who do believe in you and struggle with unbelief in different moments, Would you give us an ability to allow you to be master and Lord over our life? And understanding even that you are Lord and master over our life. God, we love you and we need you. Please be merciful to us. Amen.